Okay, hello everybody. Welcome to this special weekend episode of Black Box Online Radio. Today we are revisiting the murder of Joan Webster and the serial killer Leonard Paradiso and trying to both ask and answer the question, is there any connection, and of course determine the outcome. Leonard Paradiso is referred to as Boston's unknown serial killer, and he is accused of seven different murders. The ones that we've been zoning into on these bonus weekend episodes relate to the 1979 murder of Marie Iannuzzi and the 1981 murder of Joan Webster. And you can see from the title here that we will be exploring the question as well. Was the Zodiac Killer involved? Was Joan Webster a victim of Leonard Paradiso, Boston's unknown serial killer? Was she a victim of the... Zodiac Killer, or is there an entirely different suspect out there? We're going to go through three major sections in this first part of the episode. The first we'll talk about Joan Webster and her disappearance from Logan Airport in 1981. The second we'll be talking about Gareth Penn and his book Time 17, and the third will be something that has been written by Eve Carson for this episode. She is the author of the book Mommy's a Mole, Whale of a Tale. I would first like to begin with an introduction that has been written about Joan Webster and something that could be connected to the Zodiac Killer called the Santa Claus Card. And this is from ZodiacCiphers.com. Big thank you to Richard and everybody else um, who has shared Zodiac Ciphers as well as promoting the show, people who leave comments over there. Lots of insightful statements. Joan Lucinda Webster, a 25-year-old Harvard graduate student, disappeared after her arrival at Boston's Logan Airport on the 28th of November, 1981, and her remains were identified nearly nine years later on April 30th, 1990 in Hamilton, Massachusetts. The cause of death remains undetermined, and nobody has been charged with her presumed abduction and murder. The case is constantly kept alive by determined individuals keen for a resolution for this 39-year-old murder mystery and is covered extensively on the Joan Webster murder site. Okay, um, some that's a big nutshell version there, so let's go through this piece by piece. Joan Webster was traveling because of Thanksgiving break. She's a grad student at Harvard studying architecture. She's at Logan Airport in Boston, Massachusetts. She's in a taxi line. Then somebody approaches her and asks her to switch taxis or to get out of the taxi line. A man with glasses with a beard, very disheveled appearance, a very rough-looking man, gets her to come out of the taxi line, even takes her suitcase, and then they move to a different vehicle. Joan Webster was never seen alive again. But people did notice that um, Joan seemed very familiar with this man. She didn't seem to think twice about it. She seemed to have been talking to him in a very comfortable and friendly way. And then they moved toward the um, car, and she wasn't seen again for nearly nine years, eight and a half, more like it, and her remains were found in um, in a place near Tobacco Road. Yeah, Hamilton, Massachusetts is an acceptable answer, near the northeastern side of Boston. As far as this part here about um, they couldn't determine the cause of her death, she definitely had a large fracture to her skull, and almost certainly she was killed because of blunt force trauma. However, Joe from the Zodiac Killer Insight series, which is available here on YouTube, did point out that some other additional cause of death uh, may have been involved and people could not determine it because her remains had been so decomposed over the um, eight and a half years. Maybe she had superficial lacerations in some way. She had been stabbed or cut with a knife that simply 
was not found on her body because of the eight and a half years of decomposition. Joan Webster's body was also placed into trash bags, or into a single trash bag, rather, and she was buried in the ground. Her clothes had been removed, and the jewelry that Joan had was still on her body, though. And when someone um, was out walking their dog, they found something in the woods that they didn't recognize, and they approached it, and then they realized that it was a human skull. The skull had actually been moved to a different location, and then later on, the entirety of her skeletal remains were discovered. Back to uh, the article from Zodiac Ciphers. Joan's parents made a heartfelt appeal for any information pertaining to their missing daughter, which was broadcast throughout New England on Christmas Day in 1981, less than a month after her disappearance on January 18th, 1982. Less than a, oh yeah, the, um, that sentence may have been a little bit jumbled. Christmas was less than a month after her disappearance. She disappeared on the 28th of November, 1981. But on January 18th, 1982, a $10,000 reward was offered by George Webster's employer, the International Telephone and Telegraph Incorporated its service. For any pertinent information regarding the disappearance of Joan Webster, the young Harvard graduate, Gareth Penn, by some considered a Zodiac killer suspect, contacted George and Eleanor Webster, suggesting that the missing woman may have been the work of the Zodiac killer. He was convinced that a Santa Claus greeting card was fashioned by the Bay Area murderer and likening it to the November 29th, 1966 confession that was letter that was using Morse code and binary, along with a whole lot of mathematical trickery in a vain attempt to forge a link. However, he was able to receive copies of the Santa Claus card and envelope to which he refers in a communication retrieved from the FBI files. Okay, so um, the Santa Claus card is something that I haven't talked about too frequently with the murder of Joan Webster, but is it possible that even if the Zodiac Killer didn't murder Joan Webster, that he wrote the Santa Claus card and was trying to either take credit for a murder that he did not commit, and something that I did learn from Eve Carson, as well as reading up on the case, and um, she was the first person who shared it with me, but it's been covered in many of the news articles. Joan Webster's disappearance was not only broadcast on Christmas Day, it was heavily publicized by the Boston media, very, very well known in the New England area, and the tabloids latched onto the story, and it became very famous. What uh, Richard has here on ZodiacCiphers.com is the postmark does not give away its mailing date, but the family made a 1981 Christmas Day appeal, hence the okay, Santa Claus card, followed up by the $10,000 reward that was posted on January 18th of 1982, making the deliberately chosen Santa Claus greeting card to be mailed in shortly after January 20th of 1982, that is because I have identified the newspaper cutting from the state. Those are Richard's words, reporting that the family offered a $10,000 reward for the missing co-ed. I can see no connection to the Riverside murder of Sherry Jo Bates on October 30th of 66, but if I was attempting to forge a link between the greeting card and the Zodiac Killer, I would start by comparing it to the Christmas card mailed in 1974 to the sister of the missing nurse, Donna Lass. Okay, so... Is there any actual Zodiac Killer connection here? The first point that I would like to make is, I often refer to the murder of Joan Webster as the Massachusetts connection in the Zodiac Killer case. There's a very strong 
Montana connection that we've been talking about in a couple of the recent episodes, but this Massachusetts connection is something that is quite different. And Gareth Penn was almost trying to set himself apart from the crowd. In the later parts of Time 17, he talks a lot about not only the murder of Joan Webster, but the murder of Maria Iannuzzi from 1979, because the authorities, especially the prosecutor slash assistant district attorney Tim Burke, believed that Leonard Paradiso, the serial killer, was responsible for the murder of Joan Webster as well as the murder of Maria Iannuzzi from 1979. One of the few points where Tim Burke and Eve Carson actually agree is that the Zodiac Killer did not commit the murder of Joan Webster. They just differ on who actually did it. Tim Burke says Leonard Paradiso, and Eve Carson more or less says that there was a police cover-up. If we can go over to the, um, I guess you'd say the third section of Time 17 that has been made available online. I um, have a book discussion about it here on this channel. If anybody would like to hear some more uh, detailed responses to Time 17 by Gareth Penn, I'm actually holding the copy, though, that was sent to me by Ray Grant, so much appreciated, definitely. Thank you for that. But about the murder of Joan Webster and the murder of Maria Iannuzzi, Gareth Penn is going to share some things for us following the trial of of um, Leonard Paradiso in the murder of Maria Iannuzzi. And what he has here is that someone had called him at home on July 5th of 1984 and asked for Diane, then hung up when Diane came to the phone. I imagine that she had found, by using the Haynes Crisscross directory, that the phone number, which Mike O'Hare had given, was listed under the name Diane. She had just called to make sure that there was somebody named Diane living with me. I suspect that she did some other research, too. It was about a week later that I started getting one ring, hang-up phone calls at work as well. When they began coming, I asked the receptionist to keep a record using an electronic digital clock at the reception desk. On the 10th of August, 1984, we got a call at work at 12.38 p.m. There was another at home at 9.22 p.m. on the same day. These two calls replicated the firearm calibers used by the Zodiac. I mean, first, being clear, the 38 caliber, and then there was the um, 9 millimeter. And then the 22 caliber, 9.22 p.m., that has two and one. These two calls replicated all of the firearm calibers used by the Zodiac. On the 11th, there was a nocturnal call at 12.20 a.m. After that, there was nothing for almost two weeks. At the same time, the, a new pattern began to emerge. Here's why I have somewhat of a problem with Gareth Penn and his theories and sharing anything that's going on in Time 17. What did that last sentence just say? Oh yeah, a new pattern emerged. Somebody called him at 9.22, somebody called him at 12.38, and he's trying to think that that is evidence. I mean, that's just talking in circles, more or less. And also, I really don't want to bring up that whole number 23 phenomenon stuff again, but you can play these number games any way you want with the appropriate amount of cleverness. What if somebody sent him 
something in the mail that had the number 38 written on it. And he's like, oh, look, it's a clue. Not only is it a zoning code for Cambridge, Massachusetts, it's also a 38 caliber. But, um, uh, well, I mean, I don't even want to get into the gun calibers things because uh, Gareth Penn would go on to revise this stuff later on in his book, The Second Power. But um, about this here, I just, I'm not the biggest fan of this thinking. And you can hear the uh, book discussion that I do have on Time 17. I have book discussions on various uh, Zodiac Killer books, Zodiac Unmasked by Robert Graysmith, The Myth of the Zodiac Killer by Thomas Henry Horan, as well as The Most Dangerous Animal of All by Gary Stewart. The book discussion on Gareth Penn's Time 17 is the shortest. And the reason why is because of these things here, these mathematical signatures that he claims to have been receiving. And you have to accept the premise that everything in the Zodiac Killer mystery is a mathematical signature, even down to the times when Gareth Penn is getting these phone calls and, like, following along with a digital clock, oh, this person is trying to communicate to me with numbers. I didn't accept that. I didn't accept the initial premise that everything is a mathematical signature or that anybody is trying to communicate to him with numbers. So that's why that book discussion was only six episodes. But um, there is a playlist about that here on this channel. What I'm more fascinated with in this chapter here is his assessment of how he begins to disagree with the um, with the prosecutor's narrative involving Leonard Paradiso in the murder of Joan Webster, as well as the murder of um, Maria Iannuzzi. And he also seems to track to somebody down who was an ex-girlfriend of Leonard Paradiso, and she says that my ex-boyfriend got convicted for the murder of Joan Webster. Bear in mind that Joan Webster's murder was much more heavily publicized in the tabloids. And Gareth Penn, of all people, wants to point out, well, this is what the media does. This is how the media is altering people's thinking. Leonard Paradiso was not convicted of the murder of Joan Webster. He was convicted of the murder of Maria Iannuzzi. Then the prosecution attributed Joan Webster's murder to him. So um, I said that Tim Burke and Eve Carson have one point that they are in agreement with, that it wasn't the um, Zodiac killer. Well, Gareth Penn and Eve Carson would be in agreement that it wasn't Paradiso who committed that murder, and that the authorities wanted Leonard Paradiso convicted of the murder of Maria Iannuzzi so that then they could put Paradiso in jail, that they could then later on um, attribute the murder of Joan Webster to him, and then they could close this high-profile case. Now, there's also something in here in Time 17 that talks about how the state wanted Paradiso to confess. They wanted to put him in jail, give him life in prison for the murder of Maria Iannuzzi, and the deal that he would get is that um, he would get certain privileges in prison and... Um, he would be able to serve out the remainder of his sentence in any prison that he would choose, like the lowest minimum security prison. He could get a private cell if he wanted and so on in exchange for confessing to the murder of Joan Webster. Now, in Time 17, there are lots of things that he talks about from a prosecutor named Tim Burke, whom I've previously mentioned. And he says that Tim Burke relies heavily on two jailhouse informants who have come forward and say that Leonard Paradiso bragged in prison to killing both Joan Webster and Maria Iannuzzi. Tim Burke maintains that position to this day. He even told me in his own words a couple weeks ago that there is no doubt in his mind 
that Leonard Paradiso murdered Maria Anuzzi and Joan Webster because he bragged about it in prison to two different people. I mean, 40 years later, he's standing by that claim. The other thing that I began to notice about um, the murder of Maria Iannuzzi, which I have to confess to you, is a little bit not exactly easier to unravel, but I can't think of a better way to describe it, because Maria Iannuzzi had a definitive connection to Leonard Paradiso, and I have a, a whole presentation on how her murder was um, conducted, but Gareth Penn really gets a lot of it down in a pretty solid way, talking about how Leonard Paradiso and Maria Iannuzzi knew each other. I would like to go to page 195 of Time 17 by Gareth Penn here. Maria Iannuzzi had been a voluptuously built young woman in her early 20s. She lived with a boyfriend, David Doyle, but she was often unfaithful to him. They fought constantly about infidelity. On at least one occasion, Doyle had attacked her, putting his hands around her throat as if to strangle her. When they fought, they off she often scratched his face. Their neighbors were familiar with their battles. As far as uh, leaving marks on her, there was at least one incident prior to Marie's murder where David Doyle had grabbed her around the neck and strangled her enough to leave red marks along her neck. I haven't exactly heard that... Um, she frequently left scratches on her his face before, but Maria Iannuzzi did have long fingernails. On the evening of her death, Marie and David had been at a wedding reception together with Leonard Paradiso and his girlfriend. Marie was very drunk and made passes at all of the men. David flew into rage. They fought and they made a quiet. Uh, they made quite a scene. He stormed out of the party by himself. The host asked Paradiso and his girlfriend to take Marie home. She was too inebriated to make it by herself. She was wearing a black leotard, black tights, and a red wraparound skirt and a scarf. About this here, I think the thing that actually set David Doyle off is that he is at the wedding of his cousin, mind you. This is the reason why Marie is there. They were attending the wedding of uh, David Doyle's cousin, and David Doyle ripped his pants at the wedding. That's actually what he is mad about, not something immediately tied to Marie. As far as storming out of the party, he, he went home because he ripped his pants. And um, they asked Paradiso and his girlfriend to take Marie home, but um, they ended up taking her to a bar that was two blocks away from her home. It was called the Cardinales Nest Bar in Revere, Massachusetts. This is the interesting part. Paradiso dropped her off at a bar near her apartment, which he shared with Doyle. She said he recalled that he she was afraid to go home to confront David Doyle. Sometime later, Paradiso came back to the bar and left with Marie, or perhaps it was Paradiso's girlfriend, or perhaps Paradiso and his girlfriend. The testimony of people it gets very mixed up at the bar on this point. Now, I would like to just... um try and clarify a few of these things. When I did the presentation on the murder of Maria Iannuzzi, I, it followed this narrative. It's not Paradiso who drives Marie to the bar on the night that she's murdered. They're at the wedding, right? Then there's this party that happens after the wedding where they say that Marie is being very loud. She's supposed to be taken home. It's not Leonard Paradiso that takes her to the Cardinale's nest bar. It's Paradiso's girlfriend, whose name is Candy Wyant. She drives Marie to the bar, which is two blocks from her home. Then they learn that some of Marie Iannuzzi's belongings are left in Candy Wyant's car. Then 
Candy Wines drives back to the party. She sees the missing items, so Leonard Paradiso and Candy Wyant drive to the Cardinales Nest Bar to give Marie Iannuzzi her items back, and then Marie is seen exiting the bar while Leonard Paradiso is holding the door open for her. This is when the prosecution's timeline stops, and they say, okay, it was Paradiso by himself. He abducted Marie Iannuzzi, and then he drove her to a different place and, um, well, murdered her. But then what actually happened is, according to Eve Carson's timeline, Maria Iannuzzi re-entered the bar around 1.45 a.m., and she was seen by four different eyewitnesses. What, what um, Eve Carson tries to point out is that her theory is that Leonard Paradiso was driven home by Candy Wyant, and they didn't even stay in the same place together that night. Candy Wyant then goes from... Paradiso's home to her place, so Leonard Paradiso didn't even have the car that was in the possession of Candy Wyant. But I'd like to go back to Gareth Penn's book here. In any case, her body was found the next day out in the marsh near the clam digger's shop where Paradiso peddled bait. She had been strangled with her own scarf and her shoes and tights were missing. The medical examiner found semen in her vagina. Ordinarily, if there had been any reason to suspect rape, the semen would have been examined to determine the donor's blood type, but in this case, there were there were none of the scratches, cuts, or bruises that were usually suggesting a rape had taken place. Rape was the farthest thing from the medical examiner's mind when examining her body, and no semen test was made. Uh, I mean, like to add um, some clarity to this as well, they believe that Maria Inuzi had consensual sex within 24 hours prior to her murder. So, um, but, um, they did not do an examination to determine whether or not she had been raped. Gareth Penn actually had some very strong analysis on the possibility of Leonard Paradiso committing the rape of Maria Iannuzzi. And I would like to jump ahead to something that he has written here on page 196. Many women wear tights over their leotards. Others wear them under. If Maria Iannuzzi was one that had the latter of sorts, then in order for her to have had sexual relations with anyone, she would have had to have taken off her leotard first, then her tights, in order to, for her to be wearing only the leotard in the case that she was found, or in the way that she was found. Her murderer would have to take off the leotard, remove her tights, rape her, kill her, then put her back into the leotard. If she was wearing tights over the leotard, he could have pulled them off, but then he would have had to have contend with the crotch of the leotard, which didn't have any snap closure. Besides that, there was just no evidence of rape whatsoever, only that she had sexual relations with a man of an unknown identity. And I've asked Eve Carson about this. And I believe she said during the trial, they said that Leonard Paradiso would have pulled off the tights by pulling them across the um, groinal area of the leotard, for lack of a better term, even though there are no snaps or openings. And I think that that is um, pretty far out. Okay, though, the thing that I found much more... Um, well, I mean, I mean, I did think that that was a very good point that he brought up about how if they're going to establish this narrative that Leonard Paradiso is trying to rape Maria Iannuzzi, then it's just going to fall flat because it seems like it didn't happen. Well, if that didn't take place, if Leonard Paradiso or David Doyle or Michael O'Hare or anybody was trying to kill Maria Iannuzzi, well, what on earth happened? Well, um, let's just keep going. The prosecution scenario went like this. Paradiso took Maria Iannuzzi away from 
the bar to a secluded location where he forced his intentions on her. She resisted, so he wrapped the scarf around her throat, strangled her, and in a state of unconsciousness, then raped her. After he had finished raping her, he strangled her some more so that she was dead, and nobody saw him do this, and he did not confess to it. There was no physical evidence to support it. It was only that a rape charge could be made to stick, given the lack of evidence. He really says it was the only way. Um, I think this provides a certain level of clarity to the situation, because Maria Iannuzzi's scarf was tied in a double knot, and I asked Eve Carson very clearly, well, is this just something fashionable that Marie was wearing? Did she tie the double knot herself, and then someone just slid it up a little bit tighter, or they grabbed a hold of the scarf so that they could, once again, tighten it around her neck? But um, I believe Eve Carson has said that Marie did not tie the double knot. She had her scarf, of course, but I think that this could provide something that someone strangled her first to be unconscious and then later on tied the double knot and forced it down to strangle her to the point where she would pass away for a variety of reasons. But, um, I mean, if Leonard Paradiso didn't have the car, that would completely exonerate him. And I should be clear that Michael O'Hare or Gareth Penn or anyone connected to the Zodiac Killer mystery is not actually a suspect in the murder of Maria Iannuzzi. They're suspects in the murder of Joan Webster. But um, first, to get to the murder of Joan Webster, we have to look at the events of August 12, 1979, which it relates to what we were saying here about Maria Iannuzzi. Then to the murder of Joan Webster, I thought that Gareth Penn's um, assessment of this was a little bit shaky, to be honest, because he says, Joan Webster is in the taxi line at Boston Logan Airport, and then she is approached by this person whom, seems, whom she seems very comfortable with, although if a serial killer is, is probably the only person that can put people in a strong sense of ease, but she seemed to have great familiarity with her abductor, the person who lured her away. She was murdered on or about the 28th of November. We don't necessarily know for sure, but I thought that Gareth Penn may have um, been a little bit shaky with his analysis when he says, why would this 25-year-old Harvard architecture student have accepted a ride from Leonard Paradiso, an eighth-grade dropout who sold clams for a living, and first he's going from the airport, driving an illegal taxi. He gets her onto his boat, the Malafemina offers her a drink, and then they maybe they did something in between, but he tries to sexually assault her. Maybe he successfully sexually assaults her. Then he beats her to death with a whiskey bottle. That's what Gareth Penn is even just beginning to talk about, and I don't think that was quite the prosecution's timeline from looking into this for the other episodes. I think that they're, the way that they have described it is, Leonard Paradiso was driving an illegal taxi. He approaches Joan Webster at the airport, and he asks her, do you want to come into the taxi? It's a cheaper price, and so on. They said that, um, well, I'll just keep going with that. He then drives her to his boat and then pulls a gun on her, and she entered the boat under the threat of being shot. He had her at gunpoint. She didn't voluntarily enter the boat to go on some type of midnight cruise, the way that Gareth Penn described it. And then while she's being threatened with gun at gunpoint, he sexually assaulted her. Some altercation occurred, and he struck her with a whiskey bottle. 
I had always thought that Maria, that um, Joan Webster had actually been murdered with the whiskey bottle. And this is another thing that I asked Eve Carson about when I was like, um, what was she actually killed with? What was the blunt force trauma that was involved with attacking Joan Webster? Because she did um, almost certainly die from blunt force trauma based on the impact in her skull. And Eve Carson said it most likely was not a whiskey bottle. That was the prosecution creating some distortion. She was most likely struck with either a bat or a tire iron that could have actually generated that level of force. And as far as um, finding... As far as finding the um, the gun, um, I think that that is a very long explanation, but that just is quite shocking to me, that he's going to lure her onto the boat at gunpoint, then decide to use blunt force trauma, maybe strangulation, and they, they talk about this a lot, that he strangled her and hit her with a whiskey bottle. Well, what does he have the gun for? And I say that because the prosecution then said, he threw the gun in the water. Why is he getting rid of the gun? If he didn't use it, he would have no reason to hide it. But uh, that's just my two cents. I don't think that that theory makes sense. And the boat theory has been mostly debunked because the boat that they're talking about, the Malafemina, didn't exist at the time. It was underwater. Or, I mean, like, it wasn't a registered boat or anything. It had been submerged because of the... Um, well, Leonard Paradiso sank it because of an intentional insurance fraud. And I would like to go on to the next point here because I said that I would get to Eve Carson's comments on the Zodiac Killer. I wanted to know very clearly, why is the Zodiac Killer separate from the murder of Joan Webster? I've talked about all of my reasons, saying that she was killed with blunt force trauma. The Zodiac Killer didn't do that. She was abducted. The Zodiac Killer didn't do that. I also don't think the Zodiac abducted Kathleen Johns on March 22, 1970. And the Zodiac Killer didn't bury the bodies of the victims. Other than moving Paul Stein's body in the taxi, the Zodiac did very little to touch the bodies of the victims. I mean, of course, Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard, but both of them did survive. They weren't dead yet. And the Zodiac certainly didn't strip the victims naked, leaving their jewelry on, though and tie them up in a trash bag and bury them in the ground. And the Zodiac also didn't operate in Massachusetts. Okay, but that, those are my answers. This is Eve Carson's, which she has written for me here. There are several things that ruled out the Zodiac theories. First, Gareth Penn's manifesto was dismissed by the FBI. They found his conclusions forced and unreliable. There really was no evidence that put Jones' case into the Zodiac's wheelhouse, other than Gareth Penn's contentions, the most convincing piece of evidence was that the eyewitness description was from the town taxi cabbie. Joan knew and trusted the man at Logan Airport. She would not have changed cars otherwise, even if it was someone she casually knew or recognized. And I should insert that um, Gareth Penn does say that in that section of the book that I was just reading. Joan Webster was an architecture student. Michael O'Hare had architecture connections to that department at Harvard, or he had connections to the architecture department at Harvard, where Joan was a student. So that's how he claims that he would have um, been able to, to get her in the car. Eve Carson disagrees. The car was there, ready and waiting. That indicates premeditation. We know what happened to her. She got into the car. She disappeared and was found murdered eight and a half years later. None of the theories of Zodiac suspects places the suspect in the time and place to commit the crime. 
Joan didn't know any of them. They wouldn't know her changed travel plans. Authorities ruled out Michael O'Hare. Even if Joan recognized him, she wouldn't have changed cars with him. Joan knew the man at the airport, no question. The fact that Tim Burke, the prosecutor, the trooper Andrew Palumbo, and the detective Carmen Tamaro, and Joan's father, George Webster, pressed so aggressively to pin this murder on Leonard Paradiso is a determining factor. You have to ask, who did they cover up for in an effort that began in December of 1981. Thank you to Eve Carson for all of these here. As for the first part of um, this, Gareth Penn's manifesto was dismissed by the FBI. They found his conclusions to be forced. Oh, that's exactly what I was saying about that whole someone is calling me once and the, the phone is ringing one time. They're calling once at 1238, once at 922. Yeah, th I have a six-part book discussion on time 17. That one sentence encapsulate all of it. I think Gareth Penn's conclusions are forced. He doesn't provide certainty on how these mathematical signatures and these uh, numerical communications, like someone calling and rent the phone rings once, like that is significant. I just don't feel convinced. I don't believe that he has done enough to show that this is actually the Zodiac Killer communicating with him, as well as everything about the Morse code and the binary. It's very forced. Oh, fascinating. Do not misunderstand me. Fascinating. This type of Massachusetts connection to the Zodiac Killer mystery, it would make for a great novel, just the way that somebody would operate. And I can't get rid of that thinking. With the Bates murder in 1966, someone lures somebody away from the car. At Lake Herman Road, someone's shooting bullets at the car. At Blue Rock Springs, someone approaches the car window at um, Lake Berryessa, somebody is writing a message on the car door. At um, the Stein murder, someone is riding in the taxi cab. Now with the murder of Joan Webster, somebody is driving the taxi cab. It's like there's um, some type of mechanical mechanism going on in the Zodiac Killer thought process, but that's just interlocking creativity. So... Thank you to Richard Grinnell, Eve Carson, Gareth Penn, and everybody else who has written material cited in this here, including Tim Burke, who is the author of The Paradiso Files. What do you think happened to Maria Iannuzzi and Joan Webster? You can think about that during the break, and then we will look at a PowerPoint presentation that Eve Carson has created, which will go through some of the evidence in Joan Webster's murder. Be right back after this.